Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, I am so, so, so happy you are here listening to this interview today. We are speaking to Ralph Craig III. I love saying his name. But Ralph is someone who has been on my heart, my mind to interview for a long, long time just because of the depth of knowledge and practice and wisdom that he has around yoga and Buddhism and philosophy and theology and comparative religious studies. You are absolutely going to love this episode. It is so, so good. This conversation was absolutely one of our favorites and we could have just kept going because we were having such a good time diving into deep um, discussions around the Ashtanga yoga practice um, as well as Buddhism and comparative religion and historical uh, significance of different religions as well as modern significance of you know different cultural icons and their interest in eastern religions and east meets west and west meets east and oh my gosh we're really getting into it it is incredible but ralph craig is um a phd professor, I guess, of religious studies from Stanford University, which is a pretty big deal, you know. He had a BA in theological studies and comparative theology and yoga studies and dove into a PhD. He's also a student of John Campbell, who we've interviewed on the podcast, who is also a a wonderful PhD professor in Sanskrit studies and Buddhist um, religion, I guess, and philosophy. And so it's so interesting that this is also uh, Rolf's lineage as well, that he really gravitated to this deep uh, path of jnana yoga, this wisdom, um, you know, metaphysics, religion, this religious experience, um, African-American religious history, religion and popular culture, as well as the historical significance of, um, you know, Eastern philosophy on cultures. So he has written a beautiful book that we're talking about today a little bit. I can't believe, you know, it was a project that when we first started talking three years ago, wasn't even on his radar. And in three years, he wrote this incredible book called Dancing in My Dreams, a spiritual biography of Tina Turner. And it is available for pre-order now so you can find all of the links in our show notes but it will be available on November 7th so pre-order your copy now and we are talking about all of his research I mean maybe not all of it obviously but some of it on the research that he did around Tina Turner and how she drew um, on her spiritual practice as a Buddhist practitioner and the type of Buddhism that she practiced to inform her career and um, sort of, I guess, bridge the metaphysical and physical realms. And so it's just a, a credible conversation about manifestation and abundance and energy and religious practices and his own experience um, being a Buddhist practitioner and Ashtanga yoga practitioner 
as well as the path that brought him to where he is now, successfully completing a PhD and continuing to pursue teaching and research and, and all the things that he's doing. So um, I cannot wait for you to just listen to this awesome conversation and I hope that you enjoy and find it as enriching as we did. Um, Ralph is really special and um, someone who is very much under the radar in our Ashtanga yoga community but um, deserves uh, deserves to uh, be elevated for sure. So definitely pre-order his book. Um, you know, study with him, learn from him whenever you can, because there's just so much depth and richness to his perspective and experience. And, um, and I think that, that anything he has to teach will really benefit you in your spiritual path and spiritual growth. So let's dive right in. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony. And today we are here with Russell Case. Harmony. <laughs> yes. I um I have a inter- I'm so excited. I have an introduction to today's guest uh-huh. by way of parable or I guess allegory. Okay. Um so if if you if you allow me, I have a little story. Um uh-huh. shortly after I took a um a job teaching uh Ashtanga yoga at Stanford. Uh-huh. I guess this is about 2011. Uh, I was visiting an old friend yeah. in uh, in England in in West Sussex, um, and we went out to Chithurst together, uh-huh. which was uh, which is a uh, a Theravadan uh, forest sangha okay. out there in West Sussex. And this my friend was uh, John Carroll, who um, is or uh, hopefully not was, but uh, is a uh, an Irish musician mm-hmm. of Gaelic music. And we got into a little bit of an argument there at the monastery. Okay. And the argument was about, you know, how good were the Rolling Stones? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was saying, look, they're a good pub band. It's, a good they're pub very band. Good, they're a very yeah. good pub band. And I was like, they're the greatest rock and roll band ever. Right. <laughs> and uh, I proceeded to tell him about, uh, growing up in Slidell, Louisiana, uh-huh. and having gone to go see the Rolling Stones in 1989 uh, in the Superdome, yeah. Steel Wheels tour, which you probably remember. <laughs> and I was like, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. You know, Mick and the whole thing was phenomenal. And he said, look, the only good thing about Mick, he's he stole all of his dance moves from Tina Turner, every <laughs> last gesture. I was like, this is, this guy is whack. And I was like, and so I think today, yeah, you have acquired the perfect guest to offer a commentary on my story. Yeah, the expert. There could be no more perfect guest than Professor Ralph Craig III of Stanford University, formerly of Slidell, Louisiana. Of New Orleans. How are you Louisiana. doing, Ralph? Uh, I have family all over. New Orleans uh, and all over the New Orleans area. Oh. Most of my family is in, in the city. Uh, well, actually, I do have a brother who lives in Slidown. Oh, um, <laughs> did you go to uh, to Noka too? Did you dance there or something? No, I mm. went to uh, New Orleans Charter Middle School. Oh, okay. 
Okay. Um, yeah. And I didn't go to high school there. I was at NOCA the same time as uh, Jason Marsalis. We were in school together. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I love this New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. This Louisiana. Yeah. Language. I mean, Seidel, Seidel is, of course, it, obviously it is its own city, but most people in New Orleans, you know, you just fold it into New Orleans. That's yeah. Right. The, the one they yeah. don't fold in is Mandeville because that's, <laughs> that's by um, uh, Metairie. You know, yeah. So it's like a, yeah. a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, St. Tammany Parish is its whole thing by Indeed itself. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. But wow, you, we have all kinds of connections. I know all kinds of things to talk about today mm-hmm. too, because you also were in Mysore in India mm-hmm. and a Shanga yoga teacher at one point in your yeah whole story and development. <laughs> and I guess we've rubbed shoulders all over the place then. Indeed, I think we've been like separated by like one degree. <laughs> uh, indeed, I usually tend to whenever it's been a while since I have seen him, and I didn't see him on his last tour or two but normally when Sharat is in town uh I I will go but then I kind of leave immediately (laughs) after I I don't really hang around well usually I will see Sonia Mm -hmm. and them because I know them from New York and uh you know if if I see anybody around or the door Mm -hmm. uh, but I usually buy a t-shirt and then keep it moving (laughs) Buy a t-shirt, uh, got the t-shirt, now I'm moving on. Yeah, because yeah. uh, I, I love the t-shirts. I love the t-shirts. Uh, they're like, they're perfect for practice. My practice outfit is, well, now it's it's these, uh, I don't even know where, they're Nike. These Nike uh, pants. Shorts? No, they're, they're pants. like pants. But then I also wear yeah. the Iyengar Yoga shorts. Um, yeah, but never in a never in a studio. A short shorts. <laughs> so you know they they're ridiculously short. Yeah, they're like the little runner shorts. That yeah, people used to wear in like well, the eighties. You I get think. so hot, you know, and, and if you don't like to sweat, then it's going to be like you need air all up in there. Well, I like to sweat in practice. I just don't like to when I haven't planned to sweat. You know, so I, I don't want to just be walking down the street sweating you know i don't want to just be sitting in a restaurant sweating like if it's spicy food (laughs) yeah no spicy food yeah i i'm to be honest i um my my folks are all from like detroit and chicago Mm -hmm. and we moved down when i was 13 Mm -hmm. to to new orleans and it was certainly revelatory. As I say to I say to people, it is the best place to hit puberty if you if you ever want to. <laughs> That's funny. But I remember, like when we were when we were kids, we would as a family, if we ever saw a jalapeno pepper on a pizza, we would very carefully take it off the pizza and make sure we didn't even. Get mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But by the time I graduated, uh, um, Slido High class of '93. Oh, I was I would sit and I'd watch the Thundercats after school, and I'd just be popping jalapenos and as like a after school snack. Mm. And is mm. it very much it very much changes a young boy? Is what I, I, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, growing up there, and you go to you know we had field trips to the House of Blues, Tipitinas, uh, into the French Quarter, House of John Lafitte, all of those things. Yeah. 
uh, Marie Laveau's, you know, shop and cemetery and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. our tune. We just uh, went to Marie Cemetery. And it just, I don't know, you grow up in this wonderful, and you take it for granted. You know, I did not know until I left New Orleans and went to school elsewhere and all did all of this stuff that, you know, people really loved it and that it was a phenomenon. And then I know, you know, I, as a historian, and then I know obviously a lot about American history, U.S. history, that since Louisiana has such a different history from the rest of the country, you know, it really is a very different place. I mean, when uh, when the, the British, for example, entered the Louisiana territory, it's like, it's hot, and there are mosquitoes, and it's not, this place is not like the other. <laughs> um, so, and that, you know, that trickles all the way down to, to today. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so they went. Um, what a place. So tell us a little bit, like, how did you leave New Orleans? New Orleans. Yeah, you're going to correct me every time I say it. I know. <laughs> Today of all days is the day to correct you of all days. <laughs> and, and just get into Ashtanga yoga. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I got into Ashtanga yoga in New Orleans. Um, yeah. I think that was in 2000. One two thousand or two thousand one, and it was a teacher named Shelley Minkin, and she was a student of Melanie Fowler. Oh, nice! Or Fowler, Fowler. Um, Her dad is like the Attorney General in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this woman, Shelley, was was Melanie's student, and she was teaching us yoga. And then when the set uh, the term ended, if you will. I asked, I said, I want to continue. How, how could I continue? And actually the, the real story of how I got to that though, was the dance teacher at the, at the school yeah. ran the elective program. And it was, and the students had to, uh, she's recently passed in 2000, in, in 2021. Um, but this dance teacher who I was very close to she said, if you don't fill out the entire sheet, then I'll just put you in something. You have to fill out the entire elective sheet. And I, you know, I'm an Aries, right? And as I, when I was younger, <laughs> I, if somebody would say, I didn't like arbitrary things, and I still do. So as I didn't see the point of filling out a whole sheet when you get one, you know, one right. or two of your choices, which you have to fill out this whole sheet top to bottom. That's annoying. So I didn't fill it out. Right. I put the, the two things that I wanted, whatever they were, and I didn't fill out the rest yeah. of the sheet. <laughs> and yeah. she called me to her office and she said, I'm gonna she said, I'm gonna fix you. She said, uh, she put me in her dance class <laughs> and in the yoga class. Yeah. And I was I yeah. We're gonna fix what ails you right those, now. Those weren't the two <laughs> options that you chose. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. You know, I wouldn't have been opposed. I guess I, because I don't. I don't even remember what I chose. And I was always a kind of weird kid. And I had already known about India and even Sanskrit and all these other things because I, I had already read the uh, Barbara Stoller Miller translation of the Bhagavad Gita in high school. And also, no, this was. Um, this was in middle school, but I had read it before. Junior high. In in middle school, wow. you had read that. No, I read it before that. 
So this is happening yeah. in middle school. That's got to be the fault of your parents then. <laughs> no. My... Yeah, what made you need to make a vaquita? <laughs> no, I, I don't know how I got into it. That and the, I mean, my, my family is Catholic and, and Baptist, one side of mm. it. And they're not into any of that type of stuff. Uh, and I read the, I also read the uh, Herman Hesse Siddhartha. Yeah. yeah. And that was before middle school. So I had already known about those things. So I wouldn't have been, I don't think, opposed to the yoga class. It just wasn't what I chose. And she put me in it. Yeah. And what I wouldn't have chosen was the dance class. And she put me in that. And she put me in the yoga <laughs> class to build strength and flexibility for dance. The dance class. <laughs> yeah. You know, because as, wow. a, as a male dancer a lot of what you have to do is like lifting women up. Yeah. So, you know, and I wasn't, I had natural strength, but I wasn't very flexible and I wasn't strong beyond whatever like minimal strength I had. So she put me in this class and uh, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. It was maybe like twice a week or something. And I, I, growing up, I had asthma very severely and it, it almost killed me a number of times. I was always in the hospital. So I wasn't a physical child. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't dancing around and, you know, uh, outside walking or anything like that. Yeah. Outside yeah. playing. I didn't play with other kids. I didn't spend time with other children as a child. Right. So in this yoga class, that was the beginning and the dance class. This is the beginning of becoming aware of myself as a physical being in the world. So it was very profound for me. Yeah. And when it ended, I asked, I said, I want to continue. Can you write out the sequence that whatever we were doing? And she wrote on a little note card, yeah. um, a, basic, a modified primary series, essentially. And she said, but actually what I've been teaching you is a form of something called, or it's based on something called Ashtanga Yoga. So you should get this book. And it was David Swinson's book. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, if you get this book, you can do it on your yeah. own. You know, <laughs> you can keep going. So I bought the book and uh, had, my, well, I had my mom buy me the book. And I did it. Yeah. Not every day, but I did it multiple times a week, even into. And then yeah. by <laughs> the time I got to high school, I went to boarding school for high school. By the time I got to high school in Massachusetts, I was was doing it every day on my own. Wow. You went to high school in Massachusetts? No, it was a college prep boarding school. You know, schools oh, wow. in, in schools in New Orleans and in Louisiana are not very good. Yeah. <laughs> are they 40, 49th out of 50? Is that what I remember? Yeah, yeah it's pretty low. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty yeah. low. That's... So, yeah. and I was, I was very, you know, I was always reading. I was, I was valedictorian in every school I went to, all that wow. stuff. So yeah. to, to get, to continue and I went to good schools in New Orleans, but those were the exceptions to the rule. Yeah. So I went to boarding school because I, you know, my my uh, middle school, the directors of my middle school and the teachers there, in, in addition to my mother, felt, you know, to really give him the kind of education that he wants and is capable of and all of that. Yeah. So I went to this boarding school and I was doing it every day. I was doing the, the practice on my own. Wow. But that is so <laughs> far from, I mean, to be 14 and that far is, that's, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it was great though. <laughs> and I went to, I also went to, um, I went to summer camp, 
you know, in Orson, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And the school had a relationship with the owners of the summer camp. Uh, were big donors to the school and had a dorm named after their grandmother. So, mm. you know, it all, it all made sense. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And so when it comes to yoga and all of that, I was doing it on my own and I was really enjoying it. And I would teach, they would let me, uh, teach yoga to like the, the cross country teams. And I was also, I was a cross country runner. And so I would like lead the stretches, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what I would do is what I what I knew, which was you know, Ashtanga, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, the the you know stuff taken from the primary series. And then what happened? And then I and then I just kept going with that. And then yeah, um, I of course was aware that there were other series and things like that. And so would kind of experiment on my own, but I not formally. And it wasn't really until I met um, John Campbell in New York City that he kind of, I had already started teaching yoga, but so this is by the time I get to college, right? New York City. So I had already started teaching yoga um, at different yoga studios, but I remember my, but I didn't know really anything about how, um, how Ashtanga really work as far as lineage goes i mean i knew who patabi joyce was i knew all of that stuff but um and and along the way and i had gone to to my store but i was young all of this all this stuff but with john but i didn't know how the teaching part worked right like the my sort of teaching and like my pose and and so yeah like i knew how the practice worked in a maestro setting but so when I when I started working at this place called at Ralph Lauren, the store in in New York City, and the general manager, she was into yoga. And in fact, when I interviewed for the job, we all we talked all about yoga. And then about two months later, about three months later or something, I found out she was leaving. I don't know, like three or four months. She found I found out she was leaving to be the general manager of this new uh, yoga studio they were opening on the Upper West Side called Pure Yoga. West Side. They already had one on the East Side. Where you met and, John. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pure yoga originated, of course, in Hong Kong. Right. But yeah. yeah, I taught across the street from them in when they opened up a Taiwan. center in uh, in Taipei. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, can I just ask where what were you were you studying dance in New York? No, in New York I was just in college. Okay. I, w- I was a poli sci and global studies major. Um and then uh so when Jenna, when the general manager, when she, when I found out she was leaving to go be the, I, to the uh, general manager of the studio, I asked, I said, when you go, you know, if you ever need teachers or, or even front desk people or whatever, yeah, let me know. And she said, okay, I will. And then she, she called me and said, we needed a front desk. Uh, you know, we need people to work the desk. Then I started doing that and I started to you know, get involved over there and do teacher training. So I was already teaching and, and then I was, I was doing a lot of Iyengar yoga. So my practice at home, I was doing a Shanga yoga on my own. And then my, when I would take a yoga class or something, mm-hmm. it would always be an Iyengar class. And I was, yeah. I spent a lot of time at the Iyengar Yoga Institute in New York city. Um, when James Murphy was the director, maybe still is, I don't know. So 
Mm-hmm. But because I had the, my this a stronger background, you know, I was mm-hmm. always in the advanced I in your classes. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and they're always trying to turn you for real. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, were were nearly successful. Mm. But I mean, I because I the only thing that stopped me was I didn't want to do the the full Iyengar training, which, you know, it's like a very intense multi-year. And I think that that's necessary and great. I just didn't yeah. Yeah. want to do that. And I, yeah. I think yeah. I think to really get the Iyengar yoga thing, I mean, you have to either go to an Iyengar yoga institute or a teacher who's trained by the institute or go to Pune. Because yeah. what actually, what happens at a lot of popular yoga studios is that they just send all of the people, uh, older people and uh, usually older people, a couple beginners and people with any kind of physical issues they send to the Iyengar class. So what often ends up happening is that mm-hmm. the Iyengar yoga teachers right. in your average yoga studio teacher can't ever teach anything beyond, you know, kind of a limited set of things. And so they learn this vast, right. you know, they learn the kind of full Christian Macharya right. repertoire with, you know, with various augments that Mr. Anger developed, but they never get to do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the Institute, um, and I thought that that was always fascinating because, and I still, when I would teach yoga classes, I would, uh, I would incorporate this. They can start anywhere, you know, with, with Ashtanga, for example, you, you have this kind of set beginning. But with Iyengar yoga, like if you take a level four Iyengar yoga class or like an advanced Iyengar class, I went, I took one advanced class once at the Institute. We started, we went, you go in, you did uh, a Tomuka Shwanasana for about five or, t- or 10 minutes. Then you did hand, you did about five minutes of handstands and then mm-hmm. a 20 minute headstand. And that was like just a warm up. Yeah, <laughs> first three poses you did, and then you know you go from there. So it was a two and a half yeah. hour class. Yeah, and and that's the other thing with the Angry Yoga Institute, right? You can have these long classes. Um, yeah. So anyway, they they almost got me, but I would I would go. You know, I I, I knew John was there. I didn't know him personally, but I knew, you know, because I work in the front desk at the yoga studio and and then starting to teach. Obviously, knew all the teachers. So I went up to John Campbell and I introduced myself and I said, you know, I've done, yeah. I've done a Shanga for, at that point, like five or six years or something. And, you know, I know all of these people's work, you know, the David and Swinton and Richard and all of these people. And can I teach for you sometime? If you ever need, I said, if you ever need assistance, um, so not teach for you, but I said, if you ever need assistance, <laughs> I would be happy to yeah. help you know, have these te- these trainings. And he said, he said, it doesn't work that way. That was all he said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, but he was always, he was always watching me because, and now, now I could uh, slap myself. I would practice because I had only ever practiced at home. So I would practice in my in my, literally my tidy whitey underwear. I'd strip down to my <laughs> underwear and right, which would be soaked through with sweat. And in this room, you know, and everybody's looking at me. Like, yeah. And I was looking at them like, 
I was looking at them like, y'all just don't know authentic. Like, this is the way people do it. That's what I said. <laughs> when I went to New Orleans for my first time, I, I mean, I uh, honestly, I left all my yoga clothes by accident behind. And I, in uh, Dubai, in the airport, I picked up a pack of tidy whities and that's what I wore because that's all I had. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe you know, I'll find some clothes when I get yeah. there. But you know, nobody should be paying attention to me anyway. They should be paying attention to their own practice. And I'm now still underpants boy to a whole generation of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sticks. You know, it'll get you. So I did. The, you know, I was I was doing that, and uh, and John was always yeah. watching. You know, so I I knew that I was on his. Radar, and then one day, John said to me, um, he called out from across the. Mm-hmm. I was practicing, and he called out from across the room. And I don't know what I was practicing. I think I was practicing. Um, I was doing primary and intermediate, basically. Mm-hmm. And he called out from across the room, and he said, "Ralph, go help uh, whatever this woman's name was." So I got up and I went and helped her. And then he came over. It, uh, she was in. Uh, Utita Hasapadam Gustafsson. And he said, um, he said, he came over and he said, not like that. And, and then he showed me and he stood there (laughs) with me. And so he did it on one side and I helped him on the other side. And that was the beginning. He taught me, you know, how to adjust everything. And then I, it really started to build up from there. I mean, he started to teach me, uh, you know, he started to teach me, he refined my, my um intermediate yeah well he refined my intermediate practice and my adjustments is to teach me third and, and all of that yeah and it really just built out from there and then i became a part wow. of this like core group and i would i would teach for him if he had to be absent um we you know he introduced me to sonia and all of them but that was later mm-hmm. um and all of this and it really became for me, I like to say that Ashtanga, you know, in, in American culture, you don't have many, unless you're Jewish or unless you're Mexican-American or Mexican or something like that, you don't really have many formal rites of passage, mm-hmm. right, to mark stages in life. Right. And so, mm-hmm. Ashtanga, oh, I see. Yeah, like a bar mitzvah, like a quinceanera, anything like that. So, yeah, you yeah, know, if yeah, your yeah. family does it, something, fine, right. but yeah. culturally, there aren't that many mm-hmm. options. Yeah. So that's why people end up joining, you know, you pop Warner football or, or like cheerleading or all of these things, mm-hmm. you know, to, to be constructive. So Ashtanga yoga for me, when I was, grow- I grew yeah. up with it in a sense. And so uh, those were my rights of everything that happened in my yoga practice. You know, that was especially at that time when it was like the intensity, you know, the kind of the intense adjustments and the little tweaks. And I never, never, nothing was ever broken for me or popped or anything. Uh, Well, I did tear an intercostal muscle once. But, you know, all of that was, I needed that to be wrung out so that I could grow up, you know. so it really and but because of John and then Richard Freeman, then after that became Richard and Mary became my main teachers and they are still who I have the most contact with. Although it's been a long time since I've seen yeah. them, uh, and I'm also very close to their son. 
luckily, I learned along the way, and I had this whole anger yoga thing going on too, that how to take the intensity of Ashtanga, but but also learn how to how to use that and not fall into some of the traps that that some of my friends did and yeah. and other people I know in, in different community Ashtanga community and, and other religious communities. I never had the problems that some of them had, and I when I would encounter problematic teachers or things like mm. that, I didn't you know I didn't let that bother me, and I didn't. I didn't fall into that. I would see things and I would say to friends, and I'd go, oh, if I were you, I wouldn't, but, you know. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's, a, it's for me, the practice. What I learned from um, li- my limited interaction with Tavajur, definitely from my interaction with Sharat and, and John and, and Richard and all these people, is you do, you do the practice. And you, and you be serious about that. You know, you do the prayers, you do all this stuff. And you don't, the other things, there's a saying in Tibet, right? That your lama, your guru, should live five valleys away, mm. right? So that you don't, so that you don't see them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you go there, right? You go to their valley, you learn, and then you go home. You go and you learn, right? Like going to my store and going back. So because of that, I never, um, you know, I didn't get wrapped up in people's personalities or problems. You know, I knew when uh, when Patabajoris died and all of that, all that happened there. I, you know, everybody was saying, "Oh, see, the community is like this," or then all these scandals came out, and I was like, I. You know, I, I'm great that people work through that, mm-hmm. and I'm I, that was necessary for them. But I was not involved in that, um, and I don't get involved in things like that. So, mm-hmm. and I'll make statements. You know, I don't. I'm not. You know, I don't get online, and I don't feel that <laughs> yeah. the, the problems I have or the things that I want to deal with, uh, my I don't work them out on Facebook. I don't work them out on Instagram. So. I learned that from... You don't sit too close to the fire, (laughs) but you're also not so far away from the fire that you can't have their warmth. Yeah. (laughs) At this point, it's it's healthier for me to be more involved in who's starting at being a quarterback for the Saints. That's kind of more (laughs) who I'm trying to get more involved in that. (laughs) It is interesting, though. I think when you... Um, like you bring up an interesting point that there is sort of uh, like within the Ashanga community, especially at the time, you know, when you were coming up in it and we were coming up in it, um, there was a lot of status attributed to closeness to the teacher or closeness right. to the guru. And then, of course, when, you know, when the guru comes down off the pedestal, then there's sort of this drama or rearranging of status and and where people fit in and and I think it's it's like that with a lot of different religious communities or just communities in general politics even right <laughs> whenever it's a tight sort of close group and there's, there's sort of a, a main figurehead when something happens or the person dies or you know there could be all kinds of different situations that come up there's always sort of this maneuvering or political kind of fallout and seeing where the the chips the chips land or the people land as far as creating a new hierarchy in a way. Where they fall. 
it's mm. it is kind of fascinating <laughs> to think yeah. about. Yeah, and and the and the changes and the you know the changes in the practice and this and that and yeah. And I you know my my feeling was always and continues to be, you know, you have to ask yourself what right sankalpa mm-hmm. every when you do a Vedic ritual, which forms the context for a lot of these practices, it's not their origin, but it forms yeah. the context for a lot of the logics that underlie, right, yogic practices, mm-hmm. right? So vinyasa, nyasa, uh, all of these mm-hmm. things, right, vidhi and all of that stuff has its origins in the logics of Vedic ritual, right? You don't do a, you don't do a Vedic ritual for fun. It's a lot of resources. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of people. There's a whole economy around mm-hmm. it. So you have a very clear sankofa, the, the point, the intention of the ritual. Why have we assembled all of these priests and all of these people and built this altar and all of these things? Why are you here? Mm-hmm. So when you do these practices, or when I, you know, and for me, when I do mm. my practices, I, I'm not here for personality i'm not here for i like you know i'm i'm a good southern man i love i love some drama and gossip as much as the next person you know i I love to sit on the porch and put my feet up and and gossip (laughs) but yeah you know they say you know and you're probably saying what you right i love all that you know i love all that but that's not why I'm here, and that's not why I'm practicing. So when something, you know, when all this stuff is happening, for example, you know, this is what, what people do. You put, it's not just teachers. Yeah. It's anything you put on an on a pedestal, getting a house or having this thing or this teacher or in, med- in practice, you know, the breath. That, and that becomes your, and then you lose it. And then you, another teacher comes along and teaches you another technique. And you say, forget the breath. It's all about, you know, candle visualization. Mm. And then you do that for a while. And then and then when it really starts to work on you and it becomes uncomfortable, you say, forget, forget candle gazing. I'm, I'm back to this other thing. Mm. So all of these, you know, those are all just forms that dance in the mind. Right? And so if you don't, not that those things aren't important. It's not that knowing what this, what this teacher did or that, it's not that those things aren't important. It's just that, Mm-hmm. They don't, for me, they just don't affect yeah. what I'm doing, mm-hmm. my practice and all of that. Um, especially not the online warriors, <laughs> as I call them, you know. Um, I am not affected by literally anything I see online. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of that is because of John and all of those people, and Richard and all of those people. I mean, it, I was very fortunate. And that's such that's- a beautiful connection to like what... I mean, did it influence at all what your interest was because you went and got your PhD in religious studies and studying Buddhism? Is that always like an interest of yours or did they inform it at all? Always an interest of mine. I mean, Tibetan Buddhism, actually, I so my my Buddhist tradition actually comes from Japan. But (laughs) the what I work on and learning Tibetan and all of that, that was Bob Thurman and all of them were always and John and all of them were always trying to get me to learn. <laughs> yeah. But I but I wasn't very interested. And then when uh, just before or when it when it was becoming clear to me that I was gonna go to grad school and all of that, so this is like after a six a seven, six, seven year gap, 
in schooling and all of that. It, you know, I know, I knew enough about early Mahayana Buddhism to know that you, you need Chinese and Tibet because Mm -hmm. uh, the earliest, the earliest Mahayana literature we have, uh, there are fragments from the the Gandhara Mm -hmm. region, right? So that's like modern day Pakistan and parts of Afghanistan. In India, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, and in parts of Kashmir, we're also under the, the kind of Gandharan cultural sphere. But right. m- the, the earliest full texts that we have are, you know, second century Chinese translations. So to access that, you I mean, you need Chinese. And then mm-hmm. there was this, ma- of course, the massive translation projects in the 8th and ninth century in Tibet that kind of standardized language and grammar and all of that from mm-hmm. Sanskrit. So you need that material to often to get a full picture. Uh, even if you have the Sanskrit for a given Mahayana text, the Sanskrit that you have is often later, mm-hmm. right? It's usually from like 11th or 12th century Nepalese manuscripts and things like that. So Tibetan was kind of prag- pragmatic. Um, and I'm not really involved in kind of any, any living Tibetan communities, but I have lots of friends in those and I encounter them. But so they didn't really influence, except that, you know, Richard is a, he doesn't, uh, well, Richard does have an MA, but he doesn't publish any of his translations. But Richard is a great translator um, and worked with pundits on a lot of his translations and, you know, and spent a long time learning Sanskrit and knew Sanskrit before he was ever involved in Ashtanga or anything like that. Mm-hmm. John obviously is a scholar, um, so that that did infl- what it didn't influence what I did, but yeah. I do I stand in a, in a sub lineage of right scholar practitioner. Yeah, yeah. That's thought that they would. The, it seems as if there's no accident to the part of the Ashtanga lineage that you fell into. Mm-hmm. Is <laughs> that that wow that there was a natural draws. Yeah. There's intellectual commonalities. Yeah, for you to feel comfortable in very much so, and it's like, oh, this is my home. Very much so, because yeah. I and I was already. Yeah. I mean, by the time I met John, I was already studying Sanskrit and all these other things. So we could, we really could mm-hmm. um, talk on that level. And one time, I, I remember we were at Urban Zen in New York City, uh, Donna Karen's place, mm-hmm. and Richard Mayer were were there leading a or session or workshop or whatever. And I told Richard, you know, I said, I've been working on, I've been studying sunscreen. He said, really? And I said, yes. And he, he pointed to the screen and he said, um, <laughs> like, a, a, yeah. like the banner on the screen. And he pointed to it and he said, what, what is the mistake in the, the sunscreen on that screen? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I that's so challenging. And I said it. And he, <laughs> yeah. Well, I looked at it and I said, I pointed out the mistake in, yeah. in the Devanagari. And he turned around and he went, oh, okay. And I, <laughs> you know, and I passed the test. So wow. it, it is my, like you said, it, it is no accident yeah. that that's where I uh, was drawn to, where I landed. 
Did you study Japanese as well? I did, but I don't speak Japanese. I studied Japanese and Chinese, and I don't. And I know them well enough to know that I don't know them. I mean, I can work with them. <laughs> so, yeah, you can so, work with them. You can, like, translate them so do you, you need to. Yeah. <laughs> do you practice the yeah. same form of Buddhism that Tina Turner practiced? Mm-hmm. Can you explain, did one come stem from the other, or did your interest in Tina Turner come from Buddhism, or did your interest in that form of Buddhism come from Tina Turner? Not consciously. I mean, I always, so this is a, this is a great study in false memory. I always believed that I, that my interest in Tina Turner began, my interest in, in Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhism began in 1999. Mm-hmm. And I and that's a fact. <laughs> but I always believed that my Tina Turner fandom. I knew her as a child. Yeah. You know, I knew of Tina, not from my family, but from my, um, you know, the movie and all of that. But I thought that I became a fan mm. on December sixth, two thousand, when the CBS special aired, and I became hooked. <laughs> that's what I always remembered and believed. Mm-hmm. But my mom very specific. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. but my mom uh and even people in elementary school and, and family, all of them say no. My my mother said when you were four and five years old, you were talking about wow. Tina Turner. She said, I don't know how it began because nobody in my family is a fan. Um, you know, and her music is the music that Tina made solo, especially yeah. like after Private Dancer, mm-hmm. so after like 1984, a lot of Tina's music, you know, is falls in the it's mm-hmm. like yeah. pop rock, AC vein, right, adult mm-hmm. contemporary vein. So it's not really music that <laughs> people were playing at at a home and at the family at the barbecue. You know, it's because it's not soul music. It's not it's not even really dance music or anything like that. So it's not like Earth, Wind, and Fire or yeah. something yeah. like that, right? You don't play the Rolling Stones. I mean, you can play the Rolling Stones on the barbecue, but, you, you know, that kind of like pop rock thing is not really what people yeah. generally play. So it's not what, you know, it's not what we were listening to. It's not what any of my family is interested in. So no one knows where it came from. And, and it turns out I don't either because I thought it, it came from the year 2000. But so... I was already interested in Buddhism. I mean, for me, it was 1985. Yeah. It mm-hmm. was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, yeah. and she was the end all be yeah. all at that point for me. Like, that's, that's <laughs> you know, <laughs> who I wanted to marry. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was created for her. So, that the Buddhism came uh, slightly, I would have said slightly before Tina, but. You know, but I don't think they were influenced. I don't think when I was, yeah, even if I was in the teen at four and five, as my mom and them all say, I would not, and I was a very kind of precocious, smart child or something like that. So, you know, but I don't think that I would have known that she was Buddhist person and that that meant anything. Yeah, you were yeah. reading like... <laughs> articles on yeah Twitter. you know uh, especially back <laughs> then i mean I, I would read art i would read like magazine articles and stuff at like eight yeah years old and see her on tv yeah. or something but again never yeah. 
not really knowing. So I don't I don't know where the That's so cool. Where the Buddhism and Tina crossed. But I do know that once once I myself started to get into the practice and all of that, I was very much inspired by her example mm-hmm. and, and people like Herbie and and uh the late Wayne Short and all of them. Um because that form of Buddhism is very many artists practice it, many Yeah. And it, you know, has this it's actually very they would not say this and the people mm-hmm. in Silkagakai would never uh wouldn't even know what this meant to say it this way. But you know, much as in South Asia, Tantra and esoteric practice and thought became the lingua franca of religious practice. Right. So it didn't whether you were in a in a particular tantric lineage or not in South Asia, you your practices, especially by the medieval period, was especially by the late medieval period in South Asia, your practice was touched by esoteric thought. And that's rest regardless of whether you were uh, Vaishnava, whether you were Shaiva, were Buddhist, didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so esoteric practices spread all throughout, right, all throughout Southeast Asia, right? There's a, there is a tradition of Theravadan esoteric Buddhism spread all throughout, all throughout East Asia. I mean, it really became the lingua franca, right? And the same happened in East Asia. So that by the time Nichiren Daishonin lived in the 13th century in Japan, whether you were calling yourself some kind of esoteric practitioner or not, you were, of course, Nichiren is a different case because he actually was in an esoteric lineage um, yeah. and all of that. But even if he hadn't been, right, even for people like um, Shon, um, da, 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 da. what's his name? This went out of my mind. Conan's disciple, Shinron, right? Even Shinron, you know, who would never claim to have been in some kind of esoteric lineage, is touched by the logic of esoteric practice because that ruled the day, right? Much as even later in South Asia, mm-hmm. that's kind of how Advaita Vedanta really becomes. Of course, Vishistha Advaita Vedanta and all of that is important, mm-hmm. but Advaita Vedanta really kind of. Mm-hmm eventually takes over. Um, not not when it first comes about, right? Shankara wasn't popular in his lifetime or anything like that. Right. But later it becomes, right? And then you have this Neo-Vedantic revival and that's fully undergirded by Dwight Vedanta, right? Yeah. That's down into the 19th and 20th century. So yeah. all that's to say, right? That's running behind. So Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist practice is very anybody that's ever been in, involved in any kind of tantra ritual, anything, yeah, would come to the practice and be able to see directly all of the the um, familiar things, right? Right, familiar practices. So that form of Buddhism is very popular with artists and things like that because it talks about you know uh, manifestation, making your dreams come true, all of these things. And it sounds crazy, you know, and then people always talk about this form of Buddhism as like uh, materialistic and all this stuff. But this is this is the nature of all, I mean, all Asian religious practice. I mean, not just, I know we can talk about Christianity or anything like that too, 
but just sticking to the example of Asian religions, this is why, why do you do a sankofa? You know, again, as I mentioned, a Vedic ritual. It would they were never done for fun, right? And they were never just done, right? They kind of re-psychologized and reinterpreted to be about like about peace and you know calm feelings or something. That's not what if you read yeah. any Vedic text. This is about land, property, gold, cows, wives, you know, all of the chariots, sons, sons. material, sons. right? Material <laughs> reality. Yeah. There's a great book yeah. about this but in Japanese religious history called Practically Religious. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds amazing. And it's about how the, the focus on kudoku or tudoku benefits is runs throughout Japanese religion. So anyway... That form of Buddhism is very popular with artists and things like that. Can I just ask, as an aside, you mentioned the late, great Wayne Shorter. I wonder, um, was there um, a connection there to Miles Davis or uh, or maybe especially to Alice Coltrane and John Coltrane and their tantric practices that they were participated in? Uh, Wayne was a part of the what's often called the Second Great Quartet. Right. With Miles Davis, yeah. So Wayne and Herbie were both um, both played with Miles Davis, right, in his second grade. But were they all practicing Buddhism together? Oh, yeah. Well, Wayne and Herbie was. Um, okay. Yeah. So Herbie got into it, I think, in 72, 1971 to 72. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Wayne in 73. Mm-hmm. Well, Wayne's wife at the time, uh, whose name was... Anna Maria Shorta, and she died in 1996 mm-hmm. in a in the TWA uh, plane that plane that took off and exploded. She was on that plane. Her and his oh. niece, I think. I don't think his daughter was on there. Um, oh. But anyway, she got into the practice. I think around 70 or 71, around 71 or 72, and then Wayne got into it in 73, and so did Tina Turner. Um, but they were, but they were a part of this milieu of of artists mm-hmm. who were, you know, encountering Asian religious traditions, and some of them post nineteen sixty five, right when the the um, Hart Keller Act, sometimes called the the Asian Immigration Act, changed and removed the quotas, right? So that that act removed quotas uh, for immigration from Asian countries, but Mm-hmm. Made quotas for people from the Caribbean and and you know black immigrants and things like that. So there's some of those jazz artists, you know, post 1965 and this kind of influx of Asian religious ideas. Some of them before, right? So John Coltrane and then before 65. So they were a part of this whole circle of people getting involved in in these traditions, and you know, it's that's a mm-hmm. that's a part of my mm-hmm. research as well. That many people, when they think of African American religion, mm-hmm. they they think Afro Protestant, you know, Baptist, maybe Black Pentecostal or something like that. But a a kind of religious pluralism has marked African American communities since, I mean, really since the eighteenth nineteenth century, and you know before, right, since slavery. So this this lineage. Right, Asian religious ideas in 1920s Harlem, 
right? You can find newspaper articles from the 20s and the, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, like the, the early teens of the 20th century, the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, you can find newspaper articles of, of uh, spiritual practitioners in Harlem, right? Claim calling themselves the Buddha and calling themselves having titles like the illustrious Buddha of, you know, 115th Street, that kind of stuff. Um, and engaging with ideas. Props 116th Street, yeah. 110th Street. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. So all of that to say that they, this wild jazz artists were some of the most famous examples of this. They were by no means the only ones. I just remember hearing that John Coltrane had a copy of the autobiography of a yogi on his bookshelf when he passed. And I just remember being completely yeah. fascinated by that. And of course, I mean, Alice Coltrane is like an obvious example, but it's still so yeah. hard. It, it was it was difficult to imagine Coltrane practicing, you know, uh, tantric practices. It was just like, but like, of course, you know. Well, that kind of leads me to an, another question. When we're talking about these sort of more esoteric, yeah, maybe even mystical Buddhist practices, what... Like, what does that look like? What does a practicing, what what is involved? In his practice of Buddhism? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily personally, but like what would Tina Turner do mm -hmm. in, in her practice of Buddhism on a regular basis? Like what sort of involved in that? Oh, I read about that this morning. Go ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Soka Gakkai, Nichiren Buddhism, uh, it, you know, so it's a lineage of Nichiren Buddhism. So they chant uh, Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, which is the title myoho rengekyo is the japanese pronunciation and for, for your listeners like go with me on this yeah. journey <laughs> myoho, myoho rengekyo is the japanese pronunciation of the chinese characters or the chinese translation of the lotus sutra right oh. so the sanskrit is sat dharma pundarika sutra mm -hmm. where sat means true your dharma is obviously the dharma Pundarika is a white lotus flower, right? Kind of symbol of purity. And sutra is obviously sutra, uh, which in Buddhist traditions, you know, means discourse. So it's kind of different from something like the Yoga Sutra. Then the Chinese uh, characters translate that title, in, particularly in Kumar Jiva's translation, right? That's important. That's the translation used in East Asia. Uh, and when you see translations of the Lotus Sutra in like Barnes and Noble or like a bookstore, that's always from that that particular Chinese, right? Kumara Jiva. So they so Sat Dharma Pundarika Sutra becomes Yalfa Linwa Jing in Chinese. And the Japanese pronunciation of those characters is Myoho Rengekyo, right? Where Sud, the the uh, Sanskrit Sud, which means true, gets translated with the Chinese character Miao, which means like wondrous, mystic sublime mm -hmm. which becomes myo in japanese dharma is uh dharma in chinese is fa which becomes um ho in japanese etc 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 right punorika which becomes uh lianhua mm -hmm. which then becomes uh renge in japanese mm -hmm. and then sutra is Jing in Chinese, Kyo in Japanese. So the title 
Myoho Rengekyo is the title of the Lotus Sutra, called the Daimoku, which means the great title, basically. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, you add Nam to that, which is a contraction of Namas, right? The Sanskrit Namas. Mm-hmm. So pronounced uh, Nawu in Chinese, Namu in Japanese. Yeah. So the phrase Namu Myoho Rengekyo, or the shortened form of that, Nam Myoho Rengekyo, is what they chant. And so So it's the title of the Lotus Sutra. And then they chant two parts of the Lotus, two chapters of the Lotus Sutra. And they do that before something called a Gohanza, which is a scroll mm-hmm. that down the, it's a calligraphic mandala. And down the center, it says Namu Myoho Rengekyo. So the like title of the Lotus Sutra. And then Nichiren's name and seal is under that. And then all of the beings, representations of the beings of the ten, what are called the ten worlds, are all represented on this mandala. So they do the practice in front of that. And when you do the practice together, chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo in the parts of the Lotus Sutra, that's called Gongyo. So that's what they do twice a day, every day. Mm-hmm. Twice a day. And that's what Tina would, I mean, by her own you know, statements, uh in the towards like let's say the last 15 years or something she was doing it kind of like once a day twice a day like because she slept 12 hours mm-hmm. a night so it's a morning and evening practice and morning for her begin would begin basically at 1 p.m right right so yeah and she did that on tour as well wow it's yeah. um is, is this also the form of, of buddhism that goldie Hawn is practicing is it similar or is it she often her own little world uh she goldie Hawn, because of um uh you know was kind of involved in to my knowledge tibetan buddhist tradition oh, okay mm-hmm. okay i'm sorry for yeah. going off on a tangent like uh, that <laughs> courtney love is a soka gakai nature and buddhist oh is she uh, Orlando Bloom is Katy Perry flirts with it. As far wow. as I know, it's, I you know I know Orlando is, oh, yeah. but oh. you know, yeah. she, I, to my knowledge, Katy Perry is not a formal member of Sophia Kai, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and is there like an initiation process that people go through to you receive the Gohanza? So receiving that scroll is what marks mm-hmm. you as a as a Soka Gakkai member and as a Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 maybe a more real question than just like name dropping celebrities. Um, <laughs> yeah. Encyclopedia of celebrity Buddhism. I, think, I, I just think it's really fascinating that, you know, this um, Harmony can talk about this more intelligently than I can. And certainly, certainly you, sir, um, professor, um, is this kind of my understanding of, of of what the value of Buddhism or what place it takes in society is that for, say, people who are uh, casteless or uh, in an effort to make the mystic experience more democratic, that this is part of the value that Buddhism has to our society is that it, maybe for people who are, um, say, cast out or broken off of their home tradition or home spiritual tradition, that this is where, um, like you were, and I bring this up because you mentioned initiation, is like this is where Buddhism has this kind of wonderful place where it can take people in uh, regardless of where they come from. That is certainly true. That's not historically true, of course. Historically, I mean, in the Buddhist order, um, especially in, in South Asia, 
right? Historically, it was very much caste. There was this rhetoric of of the true kind of Brahmin, and you know, often when we think of Brahmin, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, we think of like maybe Vedic tradition and then Brahminical Hin- Brahminical traditions, and then what become called Hinduism. But actually, the term Brahman was a kind of floating signifier that many traditions, so Jain, Buddhist, what would come to be called Hindu, were all kind of put forward their own understandings of what a Brahmin really was. Uh, there's a great book about this by Nate McGovern, uh, Nathan McGovern, called The Snake and the Mongoose. So I, I highly recommend early, in Identity in Early India, something like that. So I highly recommend people get into that. But the point is, you will find in kind of early Buddhist suttas and sutras, you will find this kind of statement that the true Brahman is X, Y, Z. And it's not just rhetorical. That's, that's a different understanding of what it means to be a Brahman. But the actual Buddhist order was, didn't, accept, didn't really accept people from lower caste. Oh, fascinating. Historic. So it is certainly true now that the kind of marginalized and cast up. And of course, it's not true in, in like East Asia <laughs> and Southeast yeah, Asia. Yeah. But you know, like the kind of Western perceptions of, so the kind of Euro-American perception, and I, I'm including in Euro-America, I mean, like, of course, Canada, New Zealand, yeah. Australia, yeah. Right, the entire Anglosphere. Their perception of Buddhism is certainly that it's kind of this kind of democratic, open to all mm. tradition. But at this point, I mean, at this point, you almost any tradition. I mean, you can buy your way into tantric initiation, you can buy your way into, yeah. you know, you can be a good little Brahmin if you want to be. Yeah, yeah uh, a friend right. of mine became a good little Brahmin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Many people in the Ashtanga yoga community, that's like their thing. That's a good point. Make enough Actually. donations and do some fire ceremonies and memorize yeah. some texts. And... and you too can become Pope. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I mean that book that everybody's into, uh, the mantra pushpam. Yes. Yeah. Right. That. Yeah. Uh, this is like. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, Just, those are Vedic chants. Yeah. Read the read yeah. and memorize the Vedic chants, and yeah, that's, hire your own Vedic priest to teach you the correct intonation, and you're on your way. Exactly. <laughs> Well, exactly. That's, that's that's interesting. That's a very that's a very subtle distinction. Thank you. I want to. I just. I want to ask you a little bit about what you said. I was always under the impression that when the Buddha sort of when Buddhism kind of took over India, and of course you would know much more about this than I do, but that it was kind of a backlash to the Vedic culture and like the how the caste system was arranged, and also the power that the Vedic priests were sort of wielding at that time and that it was allowing or or telling everyone like you have access to ultimate reality you don't need to pay the priest to do the the transactional ceremonies you know it's like you don't need to pay the priest you need to pay us right (laughs) right Um, right because they're competing in a first of all there is it's it's historically unclear right in ancient india so we're talking about basically the 6th, 5th, 4th century before the Common Era. Right. It's unclear how, where, where the Buddha was and where Mahavira was, right, the kind of mm-hmm. 
24th uh, of Jainism and the kind of founder for all intents and purposes of Jainism, who was an older contemporary of the Buddha. It's, it's unclear how, how much Vedic culture was really present in their area. Um, right. It's mm-hmm. because the Vedic culture was kind of moving from the Northwest into the, uh, the subcontinent, you might say, right? So mm-hmm. with these, these um, kind of movements of, of Indo-European peoples from essentially probably from the um, east of the Danube, that area, right? So Indo-European peoples come from out of like central Eurasia. So they, you know, these peoples are moving basically from the Northwest. Mm-hmm. So it's unclear, and maybe over the passes directly south or something, but it's unclear how much Vedic culture really permeated the area where where the the Buddha and Mahavira and all of them were, right? Which is basically northeast India, right? So modern day, so where the Buddha lived and taught is like the the modern states of Bihar, right? So yeah, right, so that's northeast. So in his era, it's called Magadha at the time. So it's unclear. So many people would think, oh, like the ideas of, of karma and all of this stuff comes from Hinduism. And but that's not true. First of all, Hinduism didn't exist at that time. No, there was no such thing. Mm-hmm. So these ideas, were, it was more like a stream of ideas from which people were um, contributing to mm-hmm. developing. So in that stream was the idea of Brahman mm-hmm. and what a Brahmin is, mm-hmm. um, like a true Brahmin, ideas about karma, um, nascent ideas about transmigration, mm-hmm. um, the ideas about competing ideas about the soul. So Buddhists were in an arena of religious competition. Right. You yeah. Know? So the claim, you know, don't, like, don't do those sacrifices. They're wasteful. You know, they kill all these animals and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, do instead donate to us, right? We are the punya kshetra. We are the field of merit. Right. And the idea of merit, you know, it's, again, it's not, it is, it's a spiritual idea, but it's also a material idea. You, you build merit. There's mm-hmm. a, there is a merit economy. Right, mm-hmm. where you're doing religious practices, making donations to the sangha, right, mm-hmm. or it's sowing in the field of merit that will bear fruit for you later in life and in later lifetimes and da da da. So don't not them, but us. Don't forget them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at the, also yeah. then later, so probably by around the third and second century before the common era. So we're talking like two, three hundred years before Jesus. You also get these, uh, the Pashupata Shaiva movement and uh, monotheistic right. uh, religions are starting to arise in India that eventually will become mm-hmm. folded into a kind of umbrella Hindu milieu, but they are in their origins different. You know, Shaivism like with Focus mm-hmm. on Shiva is obviously mm-hmm. different from Vaishnavism, focus on Vishnu. 
these are different, separate, completely distinct right. communities that let's get yeah kind of get thought together. Right, they don't get put together; they get thought together. Yeah. Thought mm-hmm. together, yeah. I read a paper once that talked about um, monotheistic, like you know, Christian Jewish kind of influence on the development of Shaivism and Vaishnavism. Well, I mean, do you think that that's like no. a real thing? Or <laughs> no, I mean, it, because we because we know that Shaivism is is earlier than. Christian, right? It's earlier than Christian, right? Uh, and it's not clear how there were there was definitely trade between uh, the Mes- the Mediterranean basin and South Asia and even East Asia. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely trade going on, and we know that. Yeah. When you said when you said east of Danube, did you mean Mesopotamia? No, because Meso- so Mesopotamia is like the eastern side essentially of the mediterranean basis so that's south basin so that's south yeah okay yeah this is coming out of this is an area that's kind of near if you think i mean parts of russia basically like east of the ukraine like kind of northeast of ukraine Mm -hmm. um these the kind of cultural traditions that are coming out of there Mm -hmm. um yeah. Okay. This is kind of Indo-European. So fascinating. Kind of waves. Yeah, it is. A, yeah. So interesting. So like, you know, what I'm seeing from what you're explaining is everything really is sort of like a, a mixing pot that then we're kind of defining or creating traditions out of, you know, certain um, ideas or thoughts yeah. or lineages in a way, right? That that become more and more defined as as time goes on but at the beginning it's sort of like one big people trying know, things out yeah. cauldron of, yeah. of ingredients yeah yeah people smoking <laughs> banana peels and say this will get you you know yeah yeah well and not not a united cauldron right yeah yeah it's not a united pot it's a right they're different mat masses of different people doing mm-hmm. different things that filter in unevenly into different places. So this is what happened, for example, in China in the early centuries of the Common Era. These kind of Buddhist teachings start to filter in, and then, but then at later, earlier Buddhist teachings filter in, but they come in later. Right. Then and then, uh, esoteric teachings start to filter out of, um, you know, South uh, South Asia, basically India, start mm-hmm. to filter into China. But then, but then these, but that's coming before, in some sense, some of the earlier teachings reach China. So you know, you have this uneven movement of peoples and ideas, and that's right. right that's the historical situation, basically everywhere for for all kinds of knowledge, mm-hmm. yeah. not just religious knowledge, but it's kind of movements yeah. of people. Yeah, and it's not happening like you like you're, what you're saying is not happening in in even like a timeline of of when it's it's being created in a sense. Like later teachings are are reaching people or earlier teachings are reaching people at later times and so it's like <laughs> yeah, it's like a Exactly. Um, like yeah, currents in an ocean almost or something, right? Like with the Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, think about like a stronger student, yeah. you know. <laughs> it learning 
depending on who you studied with and who you study with, that you're learning different kind of generations of the practice. Yeah. Sometimes you're learning newer, newer things before older yeah, things. Yeah. Sometimes you're learning older things, but but older over here. Right. Yeah. So if Richard yeah. Freeman, so if Richard and David Swinson teach differently, for just to take two names. Yeah. If Richard and David teach differently, but they're, since Richard is like the generation just after Richard, I mean, they're not really a generation, they're just a couple of yeah. years. Uh, and Richard is older than David, but, you know, but that doesn't matter. David was into the practice before Richard. Yeah. And so they're learning, the, right, depending on who you study with, you're learning basically the same era, but different things, slightly yeah. different things. Right, so that's my point is that that's always the case for all kinds of knowledge. Yeah. Um, right, really, kind of uneven dissemination. Yeah. Of knowledge, like a there are twenty year olds today who are in Maui learning from Nancy Gilgov. Yes. And and they're coming out and teaching a very a older form of Ashtanga Yoga than a twenty year old practicing with, say, Guy Donahue or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Eddie Stern. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And with that, again, with that system and a lot of these systems, it's, you know, it, that becomes a source of much discussion and strife. And it, you know, it's like, it doesn't really <laughs> yeah. matter. I mean, it does matter, but it, but it matters in, it, doesn't it matters matter. in its context, <laughs> you know, and in other contexts, yeah. it really doesn't matter at all. Like, for example, when I learned, yeah. <laughs> I learned it 3A, 3B. Right. Yeah. And I mm-hmm, mm-hmm. continue to do that. And in a late class, you know, then by the fifth A, I'm huffing and puffing, you know. Um, and I knew, but I yeah. knew a teacher who was, you know, it's like, I learned 5A, 5B, and that's what I'm doing. You know, that's what that thing. And I'm like, I don't need all that. Because if 5A, 3B works for me, um, then in a late class, you know, in a late class, 5A, 3B, that works. Yeah, for I'm me good too. with that. Um, yeah. I don't if I can't do my splits in the standing sequence, I'm not I'm walking. Exactly. Out. I'm leaving. Oh, you know, that is something I could never get into. <laughs> I was never on the uh just because for me it was wasn't even was nothing more than the practical fact of I'm like it it just it breaks it up to me. You know, it's like in the middle of a standing sequence you go to the floor and then you come back. Oh, it's just I never was really into it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my friend David Miliotis said to me once. He said, "How are you ever going to learn to to understand your internal organs if you're doing the splits and the standing sequence?" <laughs> I was like, what? Where, what? <laughs> "What kind of esoteric <laughs> thing are That's you funny. on?" Oh, I can do that. That is really all funny. The time. I have a real practical question from like mm-hmm. the standpoint because you're a practitioner and a believer and a follower of you know different religious traditions, but then you're also an academic mm-hmm. studying them. He's in that same and boat it, as John. Yeah, but it John. feels like these points of view are sometimes at war. Like, how do you not just be like totally skeptical about everything and just be like, oh my gosh, it's all made up you know that is a very good question i'm, I'm glad you you asked that uh, <laughs> i don't see them as in any kind of conflict uh, and i don't mean that flippantly i mean for me 
what what they, what it does help for me being a scholar has always helped me in the sense that i i can take what someone says to me and i can mm-hmm. i can hold it in abeyance you know much like shiva's blue throat you know he doesn't swallow the poison he doesn't spit it out yeah. he holds it and he transmutes it right yeah i can take what someone says to me say it and hold it and investigate it and then filter it you know and then take what's true in it and leave the rest you know not really leave the rest put the rest in its place right so Mm -hmm. being a scholar has always helped me so for example Mm -hmm. the debate around the antiquity Mm -hmm. of the sangha practice well, you have, like, I really believe this. People have to understand. People have to understand what Patabi Joyce was and what it meant for him to be a smart Brahmin, right? And what it meant to be a person who, from birth, is trained with a certain understanding of what memory, lineage, and tradition means. And how they live their life, such that when you ask somebody like him, for example, as people did, how often should I practice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is a man who does who everything in his life is about daily, everyday ritual? Right? There's no understand. So you have these people coming to study with him whose orientation towards knowledge, practices, all these kind of things is fundamentally extractive, right? That's what, that's what, not to go too hardcore, but that is what Western culture has meant in the world, right? Western imp- colonial empire is to go take, bring back, and then see, decide how you want to fit it into your mm. life over there. So like, when you do that, the question becomes, well, so I've come here, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, you just learned this intense thing. How how do I yeah how do I do it over there in a context where it doesn't really fit mm-hmm. right right and so what is he going to say he's going to say every day. every day because everything he does you do every day now does that mean does that mean that you should uh, wear out your body doing this kind of thing all the time. That's a different question that you have to work out for yourself. But if you ask him, his answer is going to be every day. And in fact, twice a day, really, if you can, right? Because that's how he's not just his, not the uh, asanas or something, but even asanas, right? For him, right? Mm -hmm. Asana is the seat you hold during the rituals you do. And you do those rituals every day. So how often Mm -hmm. do you do asana? Every day. You know, so it's, you know, it's a very, it's a very real kind of uh, religio cultural orientation to life that without understanding that, comes mm-hmm. right. So as a scholar, I, the, the, you know, the, we know that the physical practice of Shanghai, we know that that's not that part, there are parts of it, like any tradition, there are parts of it that are quite ancient, there are parts of it that are quite modern um right but the the need for something to be ancient especially for westerners comes out of an orientalist right racial and racialized view of the world 
right? That we're new, you know, we're, we want the old primitive, right? We want Patabi Joyce to be stuck in time, right? We want Sherat, we want Sherat to be the bearer of something old that we can extract, right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah that's what we yeah. were into. That's what we wanted. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you want the authentic, we wanted the authentic, the authentic or the piece. original. Yeah, the, yeah, like, yeah. You give me that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that means old. Yeah, yeah. old. That means not evolving. It's yeah, yeah. True. Not, not evolving. I not like evolving, that. right? So that when <laughs> Sharat said, "Yeah, not evolving," so that when he says, "Do you know a modified form of Nadi Shodana?" And, you know, at the end of your practice, we were like, oh, my God, that's not how it was. It is how. They changed Titi Basana? What? <laughs> exactly. Are you, are you, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, it, it is how, it is how he says it is. You know. Yeah. That's, that's how lineage works. His yeah. teaching is a commentary on the teaching that he received. And when you go out and teach, if you learn from Sharat. And what you go out and teach is essentially a commentary on what he taught, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's lineage works. And there's an evolution with each iteration. Um, and that can evolve, that can evolve backwards, that can evolve forwards. You know, it doesn't really matter. So I'd say that to say that being a scholar helps me to not um to not get lost in the sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But um, but I don't I don't consider myself a skeptical person either. I, I, you know, there's a phrase in Buddhism, we say, yata butam, exactly as it is, you know, yata means just as, or, you know, and butam means real, buddha means real or existing. So exactly as it exists. Mm. That, not to, you know, not to say that I'm some big awakened person, but I, I really do live that way. You know, I really do. I don't, I'm not, um. I just look at what's what's in front of me and I make mm-hmm. decisions about it, cross-referencing that with what I know and what I've learned and what and what I have yet to learn. The irony of this conversation is I'm gonna take this word extractive and that's all I'm gonna take from it. I'm gonna take it with me everywhere. You're gonna extract the I'm gonna extract the extractive. I'm gonna be taking that on the road. And I'm gonna figure out some way I can sell it at my next workshop for sure. Exactly. That's amazing. This whole yeah. <laughs> my favorite uh you know we're talking about Ashanga. my favorite series yeah. is the third series i just it's so it perfectly integrates all the major patterns and forms of that so if you if you kind of line mm-hmm. them up right first is to third as second is to mm-hmm. fourth mm-hmm. right yeah um, i can see that with with fifth being a kind of a different story. Something that nobody, but, nobody really actually does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, right. you know, Richard Richard has uh Richard learned fifth. Yeah. And, a few people. Yeah, Richard learned learned it as it I mean Sharat may have, you know, it who knows with like the end of Guruji's life and Sharat. But but Richard learned yeah. fifth as it was in the nineties, right? Whatever that was and so mm-hmm. Chuck Miller learned yeah. the beginnings of it, and I know that for a fact. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's distinct from the Davids or David Williams, David Swinson, all of them who learned 
you know, the, the system under a different arrangement. A and B. So under its yeah, yeah, under its current arrangement or its its current arrangement circa the nineties, <laughs> Richard and, and Chuck learned that and other people too. Um, but you know, but more importantly, first and third lineup, second and you can you can take the arrangements of the sequences and you can refit them together, right? You can kind of move them and they work that way. So if you think about it like that, third series integrates all of these things. Like if that, and to me, that's my, I don't do it very often anymore or really at all, but it's, it remains my <laughs> favorite. Your favorite, yeah. Yeah, I think primary, you know, is, uh, is of course, which is most of what I do at this yeah. point. So that is something, right, if you talk about being a scholar practitioner. Yeah. I mean, one trade-off that I had to make was mm-hmm. my, the kind of intensity of my physical practice. Mm-hmm. I really let go. Um, yeah. And I don't, I you know, I... I really enjoy that that is the case, you know, I, I, now my, my practice is perfect for me. You know, I love, love, love it. It's deeper than it's ever been. It's, um, Mm -hmm. I enjoy it more. I also don't have, again, because it was a rite of, it was in a way that's going to, I, that, at that time I needed, I was like, break me, you bum. Yes. You know, shove that leg down my head, you know, yeah. put me in, uh, you know, in Durvasana, <laughs> yeah. pull me back, yeah, break me open. Yeah. And with the back bends, I want, I wanted to, I didn't, you know, not consciously, but I, I needed that to really change, to really transform. Yeah. Now I don't. Yeah. There was a fire. And now There's that a fire, fire remains, there. but it's like. It's uh, now I don't need I don't need to be um, stressed and pressed. You know, now what I what I enjoy of the practice is I enjoy it. uh, It supports my life, you know, all of those things. Well, I just think there's something to that, right? Like to being young and having that fire and that energy and like having a body that really is responding also to that kind of intensity. And like you say, that pressure and that stretching and that pressing and all of the, all of the stuff, right? Physically, it's, it's manageable. Exactly. And then I think at a certain stage, maybe also the practice has to go in. It's supposed to go inward. It's supposed to be exactly. less about the physical outward expression and then more about the internal exactly. experience. You know, how can you learn how to I'm just looking to sit, to sit down, to sit in all aspects of your life, you know, how to, to sit in your job, to sit in your relationships, to stay on the point, you know, uh, all of these things. <laughs> how can you learn how to sit down? That's all. How can you sit down? Yeah. <laughs> but none, even all that being said, I still hold third to be just perfect. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. Perfect. Because you get, you know, you get all the, all the things that, when, because once you start talking about fourth, right, that kind of 
things start start changing. And for many people, well, I'm sure, you know, things are things change exponentially. So maybe, you know, it used to be like even part even second, you know, knowing people who knew second, it was like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Almost nobody was doing second twenty years ago. <laughs> Thirty years ago. And then it, and then, the, and then it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then it moved to third. And then, you know, then everybody started doing second. And then third became the, the thing that you would spot try to spy into the room and see what they were doing. And then, you know, and then everybody yeah. started learning at least the first yeah, two, you yeah, know, Vashistasana yeah. and Vishwamitrasana or reverse, yeah. depending <laughs> on who you learned it from. And so, you know, then that was mm-hmm. the thing that you spied on. And then once you can do that, then, uh, so I don't know if, and I'm not really, I haven't been involved in any or really around any kind of large active communities in a long time, besides my friends that I know. Yeah. So I could ask John Boltman or something, but, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you know, but I haven't really been around it. So I don't know if now maybe everybody's in yeah. third and now everybody's into fourth or something. I don't know. But it seems like that on Instagram. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. But you know, my favorite. Exactly. But you know, my favorite pose will always be Akarna Tanyarasana. That is my baby. Bow to the ear. You know. Yeah. I I love that pose, right? It's again, it's that, you know, set your aim and be firm and steady. You know, this story in the Mahabharata with Arjuna and his and his teacher and all of that. Um I that and when I'm studying or when I'm, you know, translating or all the things that I do, that I always have that in my mind. Um Mm, beautiful. Well, s- <laughs> speaking of uh, drawing our our audience's attention, uh, I wonder if you could tell us uh, about the creation of your book and uh, uh, w- did it evolve out of a of your thesis? Uh, you know, how did the book created and mm-hmm. and what can we learn mm. about Tina Turner? Uh, it did not grow out of my dissertation work. It was it was different. Um, and so how did it come about? It, it, I had started to notice, I mean, there's a kind of the fun story of it is that on Twitter, there's something called the Library of Religious Biography. It's a series for the press that, that my book is in, Erdman's publication. And uh, a colleague of mine tweeted at the series editor and said, I think it would be really cool if Ralph Craig you know, did a religious biography team turn. And I replied with, with the laughing emoji. And I was like, oh, that's funny. And the series editor actually messaged me and said, actually, though, mm. that's a good idea. Wow. Hey, would you be willing to submit a proposal? And then I, and, and I was like, no, I'm not really interested. And then uh, and I said that like two times or something. And then I saw the movie Harriet. And as the credits rolled, I thought to myself, we need more of this. You know, mm-hmm. Tina Turner was a very religious person, very spiritual person. That was the thing that was most important to her life. And that's how she made her dreams come true and lived her best life and all of that. And yet it's always mm-hmm. just like a mention in something else. And that makes sense because right. she was much of her 
conversation around her spirituality was always in the context of promoting something else. So it can only be, you know, but one topic among them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then towards the end of her life, so the last uh, the last 13 years or so, she turned her attention to disseminating her spiritual ideas in the form of albums and her own uh, m- uh, memoir about Buddhism. And so I thought the time had come to, re- to center that, you know, to tell her story, but from the religious perspective, from her journey from uh, an in- inclusive of Afro-Protestant Christianity through American metaphysical religion into Buddhism and the kind of amalgamation of those. So that's how the book came about. And I think the book, Dancing in My Dreams, a spiritual biography of Tina Turner, I think what it, what it does is it, it tells the story of a woman who, who we all know overcame a lot. Like we all, we, we know that. But what it does is it puts religion at the center of that story, right? And puts her own religiosity at the center of that story and thereby starts to open a place for the understanding, especially in uh, American religious history. It starts to open a space to discuss the religious lives of figures who were not Christian, particularly women of color. You know, so we mentioned Alice Coltrane earlier. Alice Walker is another example, Tina Turner. The list goes on and on, right? Mm-hmm. But it, these women and women like that have disseminated their teachings in a wide array of media, right? On record, in books, on, in television interviews, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we pay attention to them, then we can start to pay attention. To them. There are lots of figures like that, right? Not just BIPOC women, you know, they're BIPOC men. And not just BIPOC men, even men that we think we know their religious orientations. When you really dive in, you find all kinds of, you, you find autobiography of a yogi on the bookshelf, and you find this in the background, and you, you start to find that people's religious lives are far more complex, right, than it's often made out to be. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think the book does. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think is so interesting, this is where... Uh, this is where misogyny and, and all of its greatness comes to the fore. In the 60-minute interview with Tina Turner, as Mike Wallace, Tina Turner, Mike Wallace, you know, he's trash. But in this interview, yeah. they're backstage, you know, he you know, kind of follows her and they get on the private jet and then they go to the venue for her pre-show routine. And what she starts to talk about, she starts to talk about, like, her real pre-show routine. You know, she's, she's and in the audio, in the like voiceover, he's saying she sits down to do her own makeup and makes it, makes the wigs herself. Yeah. And but what she's actually saying under like the she's talking about the breathing exercise that she does. Wow. And how she chants. You know, she's like if if she says if I'm stressed for any reason, and you can read her lips. You know, and she says if I'm stressed for any reason. I do this particular breathing practice. Whoa. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but the wigs, the makeup, <laughs> oh my you know. Gosh. So that, you know, I wrote the book because of things like that. Because yeah. of 
that she was trying, not trying, she communicated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was important to her. Yeah. And what was the center, even down to people always want to talk about, you know, you know, after she passed, right? Suffering, you know, she was suffering, she was sick, and then her ex husband, and she, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons she left America. She's like, I don't, she's like, you're, you're repeatedly talking to me about a man that I haven't, and her, she put it perfectly. She said, people want to talk to me about a man that I haven't said good morning to in 40 years. <laughs> like, my life knows him. It's yeah. more than twice as long as, as the 16 years that I spent with him. You know, 16 years of an 83-year life. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so right. she she was always yeah. communicating what why what powered her success and what powered her deter her veil and her determination, all of that. It was her religious practices, the religious practices and spiritual practices that she engaged in. And yet people always wanted to talk about this other thing. So I wrote the book as a corrective to that, you know, to put mm-hmm. in its put to put everything in its place. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful tribute. Did you ever like speak to her, communicate with her in any way before she passed? I met her. Yeah. Before I did meet her, uh, I didn't interview her or anything like no. that, but I I did meet her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know her niece quite well. I wow. saw a picture of the two of you together. Yeah, yeah I know her niece very well. Uh, I met her manager. I met people around her. This is when you learn, yeah, you know, yeah. what a legend is. You don't, like, you don't get yeah. to the legend. <laughs> you get, you know, it's like the, the rings, right? If she is at the top, mm-hmm. and then, so she's at the top, and her husband is the the ring around her, just below that. And between yeah. that and you mm-hmm. are assistants, lawyers, mm-hmm. assistants, cousins, friends of friends of friends who know the daughter of somebody who knows <laughs> the cousin of somebody who maybe swept her t- her stage one time. You know, you don't you don't you don't really get yeah. to that. That's amazing. Kind of thing. But, you know, one yeah. thing that I think is if you've ever been in the room, so amazing. Kazabi Joyce had this effect to some people. Maybe Sherat has this effect to some people who know. Definitely, if you've ever been in a venue or in the vicinity of the Dalai Lama, you know, uh, people like this, right? And I would put Tina Turner in this in this com- in company. She was a very she had there was a force field around her that neutralized negative energy, fostered positive energy, um, and didn't allow into it anything that she wasn't willing to tolerate. Any kind of foolishness, you know. It's like a like a metal detector. It scanned out foolishness by the time you got to her dressing room the the foolishness was scanned out and it was kind of amazing to see right they were talking about like deep practitioners right that's my point it doesn't it doesn't have to be like chanting the little sutra or shango whatever any deep practice does this for a person and i would i was never forget i was backstage with herbie wayne and carlos santana at hollywood bowl since 2016 and there was a guy backstage. I don't know who he was. I don't know if he was like a low-level producer or what. 
but he was very aggressive. He was like pushing, he pushed through, you know, everybody was like in, not in line, but basically in line to like meet Herbie. And this man, like, like kind of out of my way kind of thing. And he gets up to Herbie and like this, you could feel coming off of him, this like aggressive me energy. And he got, and right, Herbie is an, another deep practitioner. Right, and the man who's chanted hours and hours, all of that type of stuff. So pushes his way to the front, and Herbie and the guys, you know, like shoves him his way into Herbie's presence, and Herbie just put his hand on the man's shoulder, looked him in his eyes, and said, "How are you today?" And it, you know, it just knew it changed. You could feel the the shift in the atmosphere. Right. Deep practitioners have that ability, you know, to and it's not to idolize that ability. It's just a fact. It's just it exists. And so I would urge people, I don't know, we were running on two hours. So I don't know what what time looks like, but I would say I would urge people to to practice. And to develop that practice to such a degree Right. I've been the practices I'm involved in, I've been doing for almost um, 20, almost 25 years. So to develop that, and there are people who practice either longer, way longer, long, long. I would urge people to develop their practice in such a way that it works for you, you know, and that you can take the, the things that are inevitable in your life and filter the channel that through your practice. And I think that what I've learned from my teachers, both on the Buddhist side and the yoga side and all these things, is that if you do that, it'll be okay. You know, things will be, even when it's not okay, it'll be okay. You know, Um, and I tell my, especially younger people, my nieces and nephews, all this kind of thing, it is essential. You know, and not not just to be cute online, you know, like, oh, look at me in my yoga shirt. Not just yeah. that. Like, do that. Like, yeah, get those likes or whatever people like. Yeah. But, but develop your attention, you know. And I think that that is mm-hmm. one of the most important things. That atten- right. There's no word for, I know I said that was the last thing, but there's no word in these, like, in any Asian language, right? But I'm talking specifically Sanskrit. That directly corresponds to this Latin-derived word meditation. The actual word is, and you have processes, right? You have dharana, which is remembering and focusing, right? You have, um, or really like more like holding, because it's from the root three. Right, to hold, so to bear, hold, carry, possess. So dharana, to hold something in your focus, in your attention. Okay. And of course you have dhyana, which means to become absorbed. Um, and that, you could say, is, is akin to the kind of Latin idea of meditatio, contemplatio, right? to kind of to ruminate on something in a sustained way. And then we kind of become absorbed in that. They're different, but you could liken them. And then samadhi is a whole other thing. But there's no word that corresponds to meditation. But there are, but there's a word 
bhavana, which is a process, right? And like many Sanskrit words, it is both the process and the result of that process, right? So karma is karma, but it's also karma vipaka, the ripening mm. of that karma, right? All contained in one word. I mean, but you do have karma vipaka. So with these practices, bhavana, from the root bhu, to be, become, that's giving you a clue. The root is giving you a clue that attention is trainable and that you are the, the anthropology of these traditions. And this is fundamentally different from the anthropology of many, of the many, uh, or we, we shouldn't make a blanket statement, but it is fundamentally different from some of the anthropologies that come out of the Abrahamic traditions. Let's put it that way. Because the anthropology of these, like yoga and Tantra and Buddhism and the Hindus, all that, is that you are fundamentally processed and changeable, that you are trainable. And then you, what you find in early Buddhist teachings, the Buddha always says to make the mind malleable, wieldy, workable, pliable, serviceable. If you do that, this is the argument of these traditions, right? If you do that, you will enter a realm of life, a way of living that is fundamentally better than your previous. You know, you don't want to make too many claims beyond that. I would say you will, you will, but you, but that the argument of all that all these traditions hold in common is that you are trainable. And if you train yourself or you get trained or whatever, that you will come to discover a mode of living that's better, you know, and whatever that means in your circumstances. So I think that we have figures in the world, or Tina Turner, you know, we had figures in the world and currently still have, right? Sherrod exists. You have figures in the world who are modeling that. They're not modeling perfection. That's, that's what you want them to be modeling. That's not what they're modeling. What they're modeling is training, you know, and they're entering that other mode of life. So that's what I implore people to do. Get trained, you know, go out, find your Ashtanga teacher, find you a chanter, find you something and get trained, you know, uh, and your life will be better for it. If that wasn't the case, why would they be, why would they be buying your attention? From? Yeah. You don't buy what's not valuable. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's well, so, so good. And I think especially in today's day and age where we're actually training our minds to be the opposite, you know, we're training our minds to only be able to focus for 90 seconds. And then it's like, next, 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 <laughs> next, right? Exactly what next. you're saying is so, so, so important. It's incredible. And I, it is the foundation of, of religious practice or, mm -hmm. or mystical practice even is, is how can you sustain that attention for longer and longer periods of time without, exactly. without needing to go to the next thing. Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, Professor Craig just really want to, appreciate the value and, and the everything that you brought to our conversation. It's been really a, uh, an honor and a blessing to have you here. And we want to have you on every week so that we can learn, <laughs> <Thank> you, <laughs> learn uh, more and more. Thank you so much. And I, and I do want to say a major thank you to, uh, of course, to Richard and John and, and all of my teachers and all that. But a major thank you to, to Harmony for pursuing <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, this, yeah, this has been a long time coming. We yeah, yeah, we yeah. started this three years ago, so we're uh, we worked up to it. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I originally thought I was like, well, I don't really have, you know, I'm not running a program or I don't really have anything yeah. to say. Uh, and then times change, <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, if if you've been asked to just do it, and and then and then the book came up, and so all of these. Things. And then you had a book. And then I had a book. And you got a PhD. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I, I really appreciate you pursuing Harmony. Uh, and to your listeners, I really thank you for, if, if you end up listening to this, for your uh, attention, right, for your time. and attention. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a heart.